You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Okay, Palm Sunday. So we're taking a break from our preaching series in Acts and going to look at a text that deals with the original Palm Sunday, uh, the day that starts what we now know as Holy Week, the day that Jesus uh, entered Jerusalem to begin what was to be the final week of his earthly life. We're going to look at Mark's account of it, Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. Uh, It's printed for you in the worship folder if you want to follow along there. And I'm going to ask if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we start. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food so that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and, and the, the one who is the bread of heaven. Amen. You can uh, make a statement sometimes without speaking, right? Uh, like American politicians who are silent about whether they are presidential candidates, but then they start appearing in places like New Hampshire and Iowa. What's that about? Right? They, th- th- their actions are making a statement even if their mouths aren't, right? Well, Jesus does something like that here. Uh, of course, there's, there's speaking involved, but, but Jesus' actions here, what Jesus is doing here, uh, is making a statement, an important statement. You know, I, I've always sort of assumed that these two events that we just read about, the, the, the entry pray, a parade into Jerusalem and, and then Jesus' cleansing of the temple were more or less spontaneous events, right? So so events inspired by the emotions of the moment, right? The the emotions of the crowd in the case of the parade uh, and the emotions of Jesus as as he goes into the temple and sees the the business going on there. But but that's, that's... that's not a right reading of, of, of those events, is it? I, they're not spontaneous at all. I mean, if you, if you, you know, a fair reading of Mark's account would, would show that uh, this was all deliberate. This was all planned, right? Carefully planned. Uh, you can see Jesus' careful planning of, of his entry into Jerusalem in verses one through seven. Right? He has it all worked out. Has his disciples go get this colt that he has uh, identified, um, and then before Jesus cleared the temple, uh, Mark tells us that he he did a reconnaissance mission uh, to the temple in the evening before he actually went into it. There at verse eleven, see, so Jesus was deliberately planned these events. Uh, in order to make a statement, in order to communicate to you. And what he does is he makes two very important statements about who he is and about what his mission is. And that's what we're going to look at uh, today as we prepare to come to the king's table. These two statements that Jesus is making uh, through these two uh, events connected with Palm Sunday. Uh, The first statement is, he's the king you have. He is the king you have. And then the second statement is, he's the priest you need. He's the king you have, and he's the priest you need. That's our outline. So first, the king you have. Jesus is the king you have. You know, that's one of the arresting things about Jesus. Uh, As you read the gospel accounts, um, it it becomes clear that, I mean, Jesus makes claims about himself uh, that he is the king. Uh, He is the king, he is the one true king, that uh, he is the king to whom everyone is accountable. So whether you acknowledge Jesus or not, uh, he is the king you have. Peter Jones quoted Zechariah 9 in his call today. Uh, Zechariah, 
looking forward. He's about 500 years before that first Palm Sunday. And, and he, as a prophet of God, is, is looking forward in time by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, uh, sees this thing, right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. There it is. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, on the foal of a donkey. But Zechariah says that this king that's going to come into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey is not just going to be any local king. There were lots of kings in the ancient Near East, but this was not any local king. He he goes on to say, uh, this king will speak will speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah, this prophet of God, 500 years before this event, sees this king coming with a universal reign, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And where is he going to go? Well, he's a king. Where do kings go? Kings go to palaces, don't they? Right? Well, not, a, not according to Malachi. Malachi is another uh, prophet uh, of God. Uh, a little earlier than Zechariah, about 420 years or so before uh, the, uh, this first Palm Sunday. And Malachi, in, in the, which is the last book in the Old Testament, uh, mentions in chapter 3, He says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And he will come to the temple with two things. Salvation, which Zechariah talks about, but Malachi adds something else, judgment. He will come to his temple with salvation and judgment. And here's what he says. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. That's judgment. But then here's salvation. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. Now that's ultimately you and me, right? Jews and Gentiles who who have been grafted in to to Israel and now are uh, sons uh, uh, of God through Jesus Christ. He will purify the sons of Levi, you and me, and refine them like gold and silver. So here on this first Palm Sunday, Jesus acts intentionally to fulfill these two ancient prophecies. Right? Now some of you may be wondering, well, is, you know, did Jesus just fake this? Did he just know his Bible and just go around and start you know, randomly fulfilling prophecy? Well, the answer, of course, is no. A lot of the prophecies about the, about the coming Messiah were not in Jesus' control at all. Um, and uh, so, so no, it's not a case of Jesus you know, sort of tr- trying to pull one over on us. It's, it's Jesus taking the scriptures and using them to show them who he really is, right? Uh, he's this divine and universal king predicted by the Bible who comes with both salvation and judgment. But, you know, it's interesting. Jesus didn't 
just on that day deliberately fulfill Old Testament prophecies. He also deliberately did not fulfill the expectations and desires of the people around him. Now that must have been hard. I mean, it would have been hard for me. I'm I tend to be a, a one who wants to please people. I, I like to fulfill the expectations and desires that people have of me, that are around me and close to me. Jesus didn't do that, right? The people in Jerusalem clearly wanted a national king, a king of Israel, right? Not a, they didn't want a king of the world. They wanted a king of Israel. They wanted a strong political and military leader who would drain the swamp in Jerusalem, Right? Get rid of the Romans. And return Israel to its rightful place in the world as this unique sovereign nation uh, that would be great in the eyes of the world. But Jesus didn't do that. Right? He didn't do what everybody expected. He didn't go into a palace. He didn't lead an armed surrection against the Roman garrison. He went to the temple. And he didn't go to the temple to worship. Right? He acted against his own temple. Right? For a lot of people that day, this was disappointing. It was confusing. They thought Jesus was the Messiah. What's he doing? Why isn't he taking on Rome? Well, three applications here for, for your life from what Jesus did here. Um, first, don't do what the crowd tried to do, and that's make Jesus fit your agenda. Whether your agenda is personal or political, individual or national. You know, there are way too many people today uh, trying to enlist Jesus into their cause. Put him on their team. Make him the spokesman for, for, for their crusade. Jesus is making a statement here. He's the king. You and I fit into his agenda not the other way around. Second, Jesus not going to the palace, not going and attacking the Roman garrison, but going to the temple as his first priority should tell you that you, for you, coming to terms with God is your most fundamental priority need. More important than your human relationships, more important than your politics. Those are important things, but secondary importance to your status with Lord, to your recon- being reconciled with the Lord of the universe and on mission with him. Fitting into his plan, his agenda, his kingdom purposes. Third, And finally, it's very easy, isn't it, to equate power and influence with the things that the world says are powerful and influential, right? Money, resources, 
military power, connections, political power, social, a large number of social media followers. I mean, you name it, right? Jesus had none of it. In the eyes of Rome then, you can imagine the Roman soldiers looking at this parade and thinking how pathetic this parade is, right? In the eyes of Rome then, and in the eyes of Washington, D.C., and Wall Street, and Hollywood, and Silicon Valley today, Jesus is largely held in derision. He is someone to be laughed at. Just a pathetic, doomed man on a donkey. But don't, don't be fooled by the wisdom of the world and don't be fooled by the appearance of Jesus, right? Psalm 2 says about God, he who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. You read Psalm 2, yeah? you have the, the worldly scoffers, the powerful people who scoff at God, laugh at God. Where is he? He can't do anything to me. And it says, he who sits in heaven laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. That's the, that's the real truth. And the fact is that the weakness of Jesus Christ is more powerful than the greatest strength of people, armies, governments, and business. And when Jesus was at his weakest, when he was nailed to the cross, bleeding out, struggling for breath, he was at his strongest. He was just about to pull off the greatest cosmic rescue mission of all time. There is no one more powerful than Jesus Christ. And yet, as this parade shows us, there's no one more humble and approachable than Jesus Christ. It's just the opposite of the world, isn't it? Give someone a little celebrity here, give someone a little money here, give someone a little political power here, and what happens? Do they become approachable? No, it's the exact opposite, right? People become, the more power, the more celebrity, the more money, the more distant they come from regular people. You can't just walk in and see Jeff Bezos. You'd be wrapped up in an Amazon box before you knew it. <laughs> Shipped off to, you know, Rikers Island. All right? You can't walk into the White House. Right? You, can't, you can't call up and see Kourtney Kardashian. Right? Celebrity, money, power, it distances us from people, but not Jesus. He rode a donkey humble. He's approachable. He identifies with you. He knows what you're going through. He's lived what you're going through. Right? If you come to him, he will not turn you away. He's available to you 24-7. You just have to call on his name. And when you're in relationship with him and pursuing his agenda, his kingdom agenda, not trying to enlist him in yours, you actually get involved in something that is truly transformative, world transformative, because it transforms people. 
You know, I think about this. It's, it's frustrating, isn't it, that for all that we try to, uh, you know, solve crime or solve terrorism, really all we do is, you know, kind of corral it, right? I mean, we can, we can imprison terrorists, we can kill terrorists, we can bomb terrorists, uh, but, they, but they will always pop up somewhere else. Jesus can turn a terrorist into a disciple. It's just another moment for me to plug missions. (laughs) Man, you know, listen, we're we're, as followers of Jesus, we're we're people that are concerned about justice. We're people that are concerned about peace. We're people that are concerned about mercy. We're people that are concerned about affecting real change. You want to do that? Go on mission. Whether that's short term or whether that's a career. Jesus is transformative. So he's the king you have. And he's a good king. He's an approachable king. But second, second statement, not only is Jesus the king you have, he's also the priest you need. Right, so, so Jesus comes into Jerusalem and uh, s- signaling that he's, this, he's the king that, has been, that people are looking forward to. He's the king, he's it. Then he does this quick recon mission at the temple. Then in the evening, then he goes out of the, out of the city again. Then he comes back in the morning and he's headed for the temple. And everything that Jesus does at the temple now uh, is bracketed by this strange episode with the fig tree. Right? Um, what's that all about? It's a, it is a strange episode. You know, the, uh, it's, it is what... what um, Mark experts call a Markin sandwich. Mark would all would often do this. He'll he'll tell one event in two parts. He'll start it and then put insert another story and then he'll end the first one, right? So and it's exactly what we've got here. We've got the fig tree encounter with the fig tree, then the temple event, and then the results of the fig tree event. And the the point of that structure, what Mark is even communicating by the structure, is that what Jesus is doing with the fig tree is all about the the temple, right? The fig tree explains, what he does to the fig tree explains what he's going to do with the temple. Uh, So he goes over to this full leafy fig tree, uh, but he finds no fruit on it, and uh, because it's not the tree's fault, it's not the season for figs, as Mark tells us. But Jesus was, this was, it wasn't really about this, right? Jesus is, this is an acted out parable. So he sees no fruit on what, you know, is otherwise a very healthy looking tree, but no fruit. And so he curses the tree. May no one eat fruit from you again, Right? The nature lovers freak out. What is Jesus doing? Poor innocent tree. Uh, the next day they walk by it and they see the tree is withered. Right? Um, well, Jesus is showing us with the fig tree what he's going to do with the temple. And the, and the fig tree was a common 
image for Israel, associated with Israel, associated with the temple, right? Uh, if, if you read the Old Testament, you'll, you'll run into references, but, you know, uh, Israel is like a, when, when Israel is good, it's like a healthy fig tree. When Israel is cursed, it's like a it's fruitless fig tree. It's like a fig tree that has bad figs or no figs. It, it's, um, and so, so what Jesus is doing here is he's sort of saying that the, the temple's like the fig tree. You know, it looks healthy, it's busy, lots of activity, lots of religion going on, people coming in and out, but there's no fruit Now, we, we say that Jesus cleansed the temple here. That's the traditional way we refer to it. But really, cleansing isn't exactly right. What Jesus was doing here is more than cleansing, was condemning the temple. Now, it's not, not condemning in sort of a moral judgment kind of way. Condemning it like we condemn a building, right? When a building is no longer fit for use, uh, when a building no longer is needed, when the property need, has a, a higher and better use, then we condemn the building, right, on that property, and we, and we uh, knock it down. Well, that's, that's what, what Jesus is doing here. The temple's time has run. Uh, it, it's, it's not producing fruit, there's, there are problems here. There's a lot of religion going on, but there's not fruit. And, and really the temple's time is, is, has run because what the temple has been symbolically pointing forward to for centuries has shown up. There's now a much higher and better than the temple, and of course that's Jesus, Right? So Jesus goes to the temple, and, and uh, it's one of the most powerful scenes in, in Jesus' ministry. It's, it's, it's the one I always liked when I was a boy in Sunday school, you know? Jesus making a whip and knocking chairs over and tables over and, you know, just making a big mess of things. Um, it's a powerful uh, moment. And most people think that what, it, interpret it as I did until I studied this just recently. That, that what Jesus, what the problem that Jesus was attacking here was the commerce going on in the temple. Was the buying and selling and the, and the, ex, the currency exchange business. Um, right? They, there was currency exchange going on and there was the buying and selling of sacrificial animals. Mark mentions pigeons here. Right? That was a necessary thing for the temple. Right? You, you need, if you were to come in and make a sacrifice, you needed to have an animal. If you didn't have one, you could buy one there. That's what Mary and Joseph did. Pigeons were the sacrificial animal for the poor. Right? Now we think because Jesus turned these tables over, turned their chairs over, and while, while proclaiming that they've made the temple a den of robbers, I mean, it looks like they're the ones, it's like, what he's doing is saying, you guys are doing corrupt business practices in the temple and I'm going to get you out because you're a bunch of robbers, right? That's how I've always uh, thought of it. Um, but actually, Jesus is doing something more than that. I think that's, I think there's a, that's partly true, but it's only partly true. 
Jesus is doing something much bigger here. Look at Mark's description of what he does. He's very precise. He doesn't just drive out the sellers, right? If it was the corrupt business practices he was after, he would just go after the sellers. He drove out the sellers and the buyers. And the buyers were just regular people like you and me. Poor people. The people buying the pigeons were poor people, the kind of people that Jesus would normally stand with, right? He drove them all out. So basically, that's pretty much everybody. But he doesn't stop there. And then it says, he doesn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So not only does he toss all these people out, that now he essentially stops the temple worship. Because to do temple worship, you've got priests going in and out, carrying things, doing things, and he's not letting them do that. So what Jesus has done here is really shut the place down. Right? And, and while he's doing that, he's, he's, he's saying two things, right? And, and he is, he's quoting from two great prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, the first was, you know, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, you know, by taking Isaiah's words and speaking them himself, of course, Jesus is once again proclaiming his divinity, isn't he? There he is storming around, calling the temple his house. This is my house. Um, and he says it should be a house of prayer for all nations. Now this is something that, that is beginning, that is changing because Jesus is now on the scene, right? The temple had become a, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of... Uh, Nash, had become exclusively, sort of nationalistic, exclusively Jewish in a way that pushed off and excluded other people inappropriately. Non-Jews, women, people with disabilities, sexually altered people, Right? Now, there were laws about that, and that was, they were, you know, partly the law, but Jesus is saying, nope, now that's, that's not going to happen anymore. This is, the, my house is a house of prayer for all people, all peoples. Another way you could translate that. Uh, the, the doors are going to be thrown open here. And of course, we see that symbolically transpire, right, the moment he dies a week later when the curtain of the temple, the curtain separating the Holy of Holies where God is, is torn in two from top to bottom, right? Opening up access to God, to everybody, right? So he says that, but, and then he says, not only is my house should be a house of prayer for all peoples, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now there he's quoting Jeremiah. Jesus didn't just come up with den of robbers. He, now he's quoting Jeremiah, and he's quoting Jeremiah from a very specific place. Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah was preaching a sermon against the temple. There were corrupt temple practices. And, and, uh, and uh, he said, uh, uh, and what we discover, if you go back to, to Jeremiah's reference to den of robbers, what you discover is that the den of robbers 
is not where you commit the crimes, right? The den of robbers is where you hide from your crimes. You understand, right? If Jesus said, you know, you've made my house a den of robbers, the idea is you're, 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 you're doing criminal activity here or sinful activity in the temple. That's not what he's saying. He said, you made a den of robbers. He says, you're hiding in here. Right? It's, it's, um, it's like the hole in the wall gang, right? 19th century. Butch Cassidy and those guys, right? They, they hid it, the hole in the wall pass in Wyoming. That was the den. That was the den of robbers. It was in the hole in the wall pass in Wyoming. They would go out and rob a train and then go back to the den of robbers, right? For protection, for hiding. That's what Jeremiah was saying the people in his day were doing with the temple. He said, he said look, you guys are, are out there. You're committing adultery. You are oppressing the poor. You're being unkind, unmerciful. You're worshiping other gods. And then you come into this temple and you go through your rituals and you make your sacrifices and you say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, we're delivered. Hallelujah. Jeremiah says, not so fast. Right? You think you can come into the temple, you know, just live, you know, like hell out there and think you can come in here and, and kill an animal and be okay? Right? It's, he, he says, no, all your ritual and your sacrifices don't mean a hill of beans to the living God. You're just, you've just added on, you're, 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 you're not really worshiping God, you're not really trying to follow him, you've just added on some rituals to kind of make yourself feel better about your, what you're doing. Uh, well, what was happening in Jeremiah's day um, was happening in Jesus' day, right? The temple had become this sort of nationalistic shrine, it had become a place where people People thought they could go, do their religious things, and make themselves right with God. Right? It, there wasn't really f- faith involved. It wasn't, it wasn't faith. It was more ritual. Right? It's, it's about doing things rather than trusting. Um, and Jesus says no. Right? If you, and if you know anything about Jesus, you know that the people he had the hardest time with were the religious people. The people that were you know, scrupulous, doing all kinds of religious activity and who thought that by all of their religious activity, they would make themselves acceptable to God. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's, not, about, it's not about your religious activity. It's about me. Um, look, when you think about it, what, imagine the scene now. Uh, Jesus has tossed everybody out. He's, prevent, he's stopped the worship going on. No, nobody's carrying anything in or out. And there he is, probably more or less alone, standing in the midst of the temple. Now what, just imagine that scene. What does that communicate? Well, what's the message he's trying to get us to understand? I think it's this. I'm the priest you need. Not only that, I'm the temple now. 
I'm the way to God now, not this building. The temple used to be where you meet with God. Now you meet with God through me. But he's saying something even more remarkable than that, isn't he? Because he's he's communicating not just that he's the temple, not just that he's the priest, but he's also the sacrifice that you need. He's the sacrifice. Now, how does he communicate that? Well, the very, it's it's why he did Palm Sunday like he did, right? Jesus did Palm Sunday, his entry into Jerusalem, and he did this temple condemnation in a very public way, very confrontational way, very direct way, very public way, very in-your-face way, right? Why? What was, what was his agenda in doing that? You know, he could have just walked into Jerusalem and everything had been fine. Why did Jesus do it this way? Well, you, 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 you can figure out his agenda when you read verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. That's exactly what Jesus wanted. Jesus deliberately set up this confrontation that would bring him to the cross in a week. That's where he was going. The temple was just a stopping point on his way to the cross. And he was going to the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of the people he loved. And that's you. All this at the end of the day is an incredible act by Jesus of self-giving love, isn't it? Jesus taking our judgment and saving us which is all that, what this bread and the wine signify, right? The self-giving, self-sacrificing act of Jesus. The priest you need, the sacrifice you need, the temple you need. It's Jesus. Well, let me close with three quick closing applications here from this temple event. First, right, don't just... Here's the lesson from Jeremiah and from Jesus. Don't think that coming, just going to church and giving money, and reading your Bible, whatever it is that you do to, to be religious, don't think that that by itself makes, your, makes you acceptable to God. It doesn't make you acceptable to God at all. Jesus isn't so much interested in your religious activity as in where your heart is. What are you trusting in? What's really important to you? What are your priorities? Where are your commitments? Don't make New Life Church or any other church a den of robbers. Right? Don't, you know, for too many people, religion is just one more add-on to an unchanged life. You just go on doing your thing, and then, you, and then you come to church on Sunday, check that box off, and you go out Monday and you're just doing the same thing. And church just becomes a way you can sort of cover it, deal with it. Now, just, that's Dana Roberts stuff. That's the first, first application. Second application, listen, if you are worshiping Jesus Christ, then 
the Holy Spirit's at work in you. As if, if, you're a, if you have trusted, if are trusting in Jesus, Holy Spirit's at work in you. Then, so now your life is going to begin to take on, and for some it's fast, for some it's slow. Sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow. For all of us, it's up and down. It's not, you know, it's not a straight line, but the Holy Spirit begins to change us into the likeness of Jesus, not the likeness of a Pharisee. Nobody likes Pharisees, right? So ask yourself, this, this episode ought to cause you to ask yourself, listen, am I just going through the motions? Is, am I really not committed? I'm really not believing. I'm just going through a ritual. I'm just going through the motions. Or am I trusting in Jesus, and am I, therefore, then when I, when I come to church and then go out from this church, am I living and loving and forgiving like Jesus? Is he transforming you? And listen, friends, I mean, the scary thing about being a preacher is I can say that and challenge you like that, you know, and I've just yelled at my wife. Right, I know, I understand sanctification is not, a, you know, it's not a straight line. It's, we do like this, but the good thing is Jesus is humble and approachable and he forgives us on that way, which is, which is why we need to be forgiving people. Finally, third application. You know, when the disciples saw the withered fig tree and they were amazed, right? And they pointed out to Jesus, look, that fig tree you cursed, it's all dried up. And Jesus had one thing to say to Peter. And it's, it's in the verses right after our text. Have faith in God. Which makes sense, right? When you think about it. It's what, what, what he had just done with the temple Jesus says, the lesson of the fig tree and the lesson of the temple are, are really the same. And the lesson is this, have faith in God, which is in another way for Jesus to say, have faith in me. Right? So as you come to the table, Christian friend, please don't put your faith in your faith. Don't put your faith in your religious activity. Don't put your faith in your own goodness. Don't put your faith in New Life Church. Don't put your faith in other people. Don't put your faith in your circumstances. Don't put your faith in yourself. Put your faith in Jesus, the crucified and risen priest that you need. He covered your sins past, present, and future with his blood. He made you acceptable to God. He justified you before God by his perfectly lived life on your account. Christian friends, may that absolute assurance, absolute assurance of your status with God, right? your adopted status with God, your accepted status with God, your justified status with God, your salvation. That absolute assurance given to you 100% by Jesus, by grace, 
Let that melt your heart. Let it melt your heart as you come. Melt your heart with gratitude. Melt your heart with love. And let it move you as you go out from this king's table to go out from here and to live and to love and to forgive like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray as we come to the table. Father, we're going to come now in obedience to your command to this table. Lord, I pray it's not just another religious ritual, but it is a time when we check our hearts and, and, and reject empty ritual and come to you, Lord, in, in faith. And our faith, Lord, is, is weak. It's small like a mustard seed, but it's faith in you. And you are strong and you are good and you have us in your grip. So be with us, commune with us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.